quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. The Olympics are underway. The opening ceremony is undergoing, is underway in Tokyo. The cyber threat, the FBI is warning that hackers could be targeting the games and snapping up shares, literally snap stock surges after revenue more than doubles. It's Friday for the last time this week. Let's make a move. As we prepare for the New York trading day, we begin on Wall Street. And the markets in the U.S. are set to open firmly in the green. You see the numbers there across the board, uh, all the, the, the triple stack on the final trading day of the week. Stocks made small gains on Thursday despite a worse week than expected and a reading on jobless claims. An up day today would make four in a row. And that puts Monday's fears over the spread of the Delta variant truly in the rearview mirror. The main European indices are also enjoying uh, some gains. The best of the day seems to be in Paris. In the Eurozone, business activity grew at its fastest pace in more than two decades in July. The Purchasing Managers Index rose to 60.6 ahead of expectations. Any number, as you know, above 50 indicates expansion. And as back in Asia Pacific, no trading in Tokyo. Uh, There's a holiday there, understandably, for the opening of the Olympic Games. The Hang Seng was the laggard. And now straight right to the drivers in Tokyo where the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games is underway in the National Stadium. The parade of athletes is taking place, set to music from famous Japanese video games. Selena Wang is in Tokyo, uh, joins me now. The, the opening is underway and there are still some protests, I believe. There are. It's just starting to quiet down, but I think it's going to pick up any moment now. They have been chanting for hours outside of the National Stadium to cancel the Olympics. There's still a strong feeling among many people in Japan that these games are putting their health and lives at risk and that this shouldn't be held during a COVID-19 pandemic when around just 20 percent of the Japanese population is fully vaccinated and Tokyo is in a state of emergency. But Richard, I talked to some bystanders and some of them just wanted to get as close to the Olympic action as they could. One woman told me she bought dozens of tickets and she's devastated that she can't get into any of them. Another couple told me that they hope that these games are successful even though they have been riddled with problems. The the way in which they're taking place, the empty stadia, the, the great fear, of course, over uh, catching COVID and having to, to, to sit out your lifetime uh, ambition of, uh, of attending an Olympic Games. Has that destroyed, essentially, what atmosphere there might have been? 
think at the beginning it was quite somber. There was the Japanese national anthem, and then the announcer asked everyone to take a moment of silence to remember those who have died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Also to remember, as you say, the athletes who could not participate because of COVID-19, a growing list of athletes whose dreams are getting derailed because of the pandemic and who are losing that one shot, this big moment because of a positive COVID-19 test. But as you see those athletes march in, it's just incredible to remember that during this pandemic, they're able to bring together all these athletes from more than 200 countries around the world. And you could see the excitement and cheering on people's faces, even through their masks. But of course, subdued by the fact that there are no spectators, hardly any, just 950 VIPs allowed in a 68 thousand capacity venue. And Richard, I was messaging our producer who is in the stadium right now, and she said it doesn't really feel like an Olympic opening ceremony. It doesn't have that excitement and energy you would expect. Uh, but hopefully the sport will be good. Uh, Selena, you'll be there, of course, uh, for the next two weeks, helping us understand what's happening. We appreciate it. Tokyo is also on high alert over cybersecurity. In the United States, the FBI has issued a warning about potential hacking against the Summer Games. Alex Marquardt is with me from Washington. Alex, good grief. If COVID wasn't enough, empty stadia, uh, athletes catching COVID. Now, cybersecurity worries. What's it about? Yeah, Richard, I mean, there are always security concerns around every single Olympics. But as one expert put it to me in the past, we might have been worried about terror attacks at the Games. Now it really is cyber attacks. It's a sign of the times. There are plenty of reasons why there is this concern. Cyber attacks are on the rise, both from criminals and those backed by nation states to either spy or cause chaos. And yet again, Richard, the primary suspect here is going to be Russia, which carried out attacks during the last two games and because of a doping scandal this year will not be allowed to fly their flag. It's a global spectacle unlike any other. For a few weeks every two years, billions around the world tune in to watch their countries compete for medals and national glory. That's what makes it such a ripe target for hackers. I am very confident that there will be some kind of cyber attack against these games. It may not be publicly visible, but you can bet that it's going to happen. That's the world we live in today. The FBI warned this week that malicious activity could disrupt multiple functions, including media broadcasting environments, hospitality, transit, ticketing, or security. There's currently no known threat, but with no fans in the stands because of COVID, the most obvious target is how we watch. With everything being remote and there being so few people in person, the place where a disruption would be most noticed would be in the broadcast. And when it comes to potential attackers, right at the top of the list is the country that has been banned, Russia. After a doping scandal got them barred from flying their flag and singing their anthem for the next two Olympics. Russian leaders, including Vladimir Putin, are still extremely angry about the way they've been treated. They've called it unfair. Russia has taken out their anger on the games before. Three years ago, Russian military hackers carried out an attack before the opening ceremony, targeting athletes, officials, and citizens in the host country, South Korea. They took down the game's website and deleted data from thousands of computers. They also tried to pretend they were North Koreans. Their cyber attack combined the emotional maturity of a petulant child with the resources of a nation state. 
In 2016, after Russia was accused of a systematic doping program, Russian hackers breached the World Anti-Doping Agency. The medical records of Serena Williams and Simone Biles were hacked and released, along with those of around 250 other athletes from almost 30 countries. After the Tokyo Games were postponed last year, the UK accused Russia of spying on Tokyo Olympics officials and organizations. Experts say there's no reason they won't do something again. What have you seen in the way of indications that something may happen? We've seen sort of Russian espionage groups be interested in Japan uh, over the last few years. They definitely still have the people that work for them. And if they've made the decision that this is something they want to do, they're able to do it. And I guess, Alex, what we now do is watch and wait for that sort of evidence, because if it's the if it's a publicity type of look what we can do versus we're going to steal information that we can use. It really is a wait and see uh, situation, Richard. In 2018, in Pyeongchang, these attacks happened uh, fairly early on. So, of course, now with the opening ceremony happening, we are watching very closely. And, And it is important, as you say, that there are two types of attacks, those that can be stealthy, those that are espionage, often nation states carrying out uh, that kind of attack to spy and gather information. Then there are the ones that are more disruptive, could be carried out by a country, could also be carried out uh, by criminal groups looking simply for attention. But experts say we should not underestimate the extent to which Russia has been scorned because of uh, the restrictions being put on them. In this games, they are not allowed to use their flag. Uh, They are not allowed to use their national anthem if their athletes uh, win any gold medals. Um, As you know, Richard, uh, hell hath no fury like Vladimir Putin scorned. Oh, nicely put. Alex Marker, thank you, sir. Shares of the social media companies are surging in the pre-market. Investors are rewarding Twitter and Snap for beating expectations for earnings in the last quarter. Twitter, Snap, Snap particularly. Oh, good news for me. Now, you will remember I bought Snap shares. We wanted to see how it did. And I bought it at the IPO in 2017. I bought at what was then the peak before it fell back and languished, $28.16. I nursed massive losses and you laughed at me. Who's laughing now? $74 a share. Paul LaMonica, Guru LaMonica, is with me. You were one of those, Mr. LaMonica, that you didn't openly laugh, you just sniggered, didn't you? I was uh, skeptical, uh, dubious. (laughs) But uh, Richard, Snapchat is proving with this stellar user growth and huge jump in revenue, obviously ad revenue, that this is a company that can go toe to toe with Facebook on Instagram and TikTok. There is a ton of competition in social media for all those eyeballs of millennials and Gen Z users and Snapchat to give them credit. They have really turned things around and, and have increased engagement on the platform as well, which is what advertisers obviously. Is this is this Facebook's um, own goal in the sense of all the bad publicity about Facebook, Insta and everything that's gone on? Or is this the others doing well? Who, who, uh, you, you, you know what I'm saying here. Is it one bad, one good? No, I think this is kind of the proverbial rising tide lifting all boats because you look at Twitter as well. 
Twitter is another company that, you know, I have often, um, you know, criticized for being really nothing more than, uh, you know, a newswire on steroids, that it's really something for hardcore political and uh, sports news uh, junkies and doesn't really capture, you know, the or, you know, have any, uh, you know, doesn't resonate with the average social media user. But Twitter has found a way in the post-Trump world to continue to attract more users. The user growth is slower than that of Snapchat, but it is still growing pretty dramatically and they are getting nice jumps in ad revenue as well. So I think the Twitter and Snapchat results combined with all of the success that TikTok has had and Facebook, Mm -hmm. remember, stock has soared this year. This is a company that I think the average person loves to hate because it always seems that Zuckerberg is saying something silly and putting a foot in his mouth, but the stock continues to rise because the revenue and earnings are spectacular yeah. for not just Facebook, but WhatsApp and Instagram and all the other properties. You make, you make the valid point. Ignore the man and concentrate on the numbers. Uh, thank you, Paul LaMonica. Good, LaMonica. I appreciate it. Britain has added thousands of food industry workers to the list of those people who are exempt from self-isolation rules to try to prevent critical shortages. It's the so-called pandemic in the UK, the Delta variant. Now, it's causing a surge in cases, COVID, and as more people get positive results, others are being pinged by the government's test and trace app. In the last week, more than half a million people were told to self-isolate by the app after coming into close contact. That includes lorry drivers, shop workers and those in food plants. Also caught, caught up at the moment, the prime minister, the finance minister, chancellor and the leader of the opposition party. Scott McLean is with me. A couple of quick points here, Scott. The app is working as it's supposed to do, isn't it? This isn't a case of technology gone haywire. This is about the number of new cases. Yeah, you're absolutely all right. The app essentially works on a Bluetooth signal, Richard. And so if you're within two meters of someone for 15 minutes about, the app will ping you and tell you that you'll have to self-isolate if that person went on to test positive for the virus. Now, there is a distinction to be made that caused some controversy in this country a few days ago, which is the fact that one minister pointed out the legalities of all this. And that's that if you get pinged on your phone by the app telling you to self-isolate, Of course, the government wants you to self-isolate. Downing Street says you should self-isolate. But the reality is you are not legally required to actually self-regulate. And so uh, that minister said, look, you should use your best judgment in that case. Uh, You are, however, required to legally self-isolate if you are actually contacted by the government by phone, the contact tracers, if they tell you that you have to self-isolate because you were an official listed contact of somebody who tested positive. So there's a lot of confusion around this policy, but the bottom line to answer your question, Richard, is the app works fine. Okay, so so it's more cases creating more pings, but uh, the, the reason that the shop sh- store shelves are empty is what? Well, first, a little bit of context. I went to the grocery store last night. The shelves there were well stocked. And so this is not a universal issue across England, across the UK, by any stretch of the imagination. But it is happening in some places. The estimate from the government is that about 15, maybe 20 percent of people who work in the retail manufacturing or the uh, the food retail sector may be affected by this. And obviously, those numbers are not evenly distributed. So you're going to have some areas with higher numbers, and that's maybe where you're starting to see these these shortages. 
Um, and so the government had to do something. They had to respond because obviously you can't have food shortages in any parts of the country. But they they were careful not to make this a blanket exemption because obviously that would involve a lot of people and kind of make the whole pandemic, the whole test and trace app or the test and right. trace system a, a bit of a sham. And so they carefully tailored it. Now they, they say about 10,000 people will be eligible for this exemption and about 500 or so key sites. But it's only in certain circumstances and it's certainly is not everyone. Scott, thank you. These are the stories making headlines around the world today. Indonesia has reported more than 1,500 COVID deaths in a single day. It's the first time that that number has been, horrific number has been reached. The number of new infections is up to almost 50,000, pushing hospitals beyond their capacity. Indonesia's neighbours, including Malaysia, Thailand and Myanmar, are also seeing record case numbers. Heavy rain and floods have now killed at least 51 people in central Chinese city. Nearly 400,000 residents have been forced to leave their homes and rescue efforts are still underway. Workers have been using inflatable boats, makeshift rafts, even construction trucks to get people to safety. After threatening to put Australia's Great Barrier Reef on the endanger list, UNESCO now says it won't. Instead, it's asking for a report on efforts to conserve the reef after Australia protested against the proposal. Anna Corrin's with us uh, for more on this. Is this a case of Australia managed to scupper the act of doing it? Did they put so much political pressure and lobbying that the UNESCO decided, oh, it's not worth the bother? Richard, it was a fierce lobbying campaign, which is downright disgraceful. I mean, the Australian Federal Minister uh, used a, a government plane on an eight-day lobbying trip virtually around the world to press the flesh and to make her case uh, to these countries. Apparently Bahrain and uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, huge oil producers, uh, some of the first to um, sign on and agree with Australia's stance. Look, it's not exactly UNESCO that uh, ruled against the listing. UNESCO wanted the listing. They were the ones that were saying the reef is under threat from climate change. It was the World Heritage Committee made up of these 21 countries that Australia managed to, to win over. Uh, as you say, UNESCO will now have to travel out to the reef, conduct a mission, and the Australian government is going to have to come up with a, a report, a plan, uh, you know, show what they are doing to conserve and preserve this natural wonder. This is the largest coral reef in the world. This is the largest living infrastructure on the planet. You can see it from space. But this decision not to list it as in danger, which really was a global call for action to save this incredibly delicate, fragile ecosystem. Really, it's like the Amazon of the ocean. Um, now that that is not in play, you know, I've spoken to scientists throughout the day who are who are beyond devastated, Richard. They say that this is catastrophic for the reef. One scientist said to me that the reef has been in decline for years and will continue to decline, that this should be a destination that if you can get there now, you should go because it will not be there um, for much longer, which is, which is just tragic when you think about it. And the reason Australia, Richard, has fought so hard against this being listed as in danger 
is because it is one of, you know, it's a large producer of coal and gas. It is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels. Australia is one of the largest um, carbon emitters per capita in the world. As far as, its, as far as its climate change policies go, they are virtually non-existent. This government, the Conservative government in power now, Richard, uh, you know, it didn't believe in climate change until the Australian bushfires of last year. So uh, really, this is a win for Australia uh, and an absolute tragedy for the Great Barrier Reef. Anna Corrin, thank you. Still to come on First Move, the company that wants to transform Africa's response to COVID. The CEO of Africa's Biovac will be with us. And crunch time in more ways than one. We hear from the head of Crunch Fitness, who says the market is now booming. A breakthrough deal for Africa is how it's being described. Pfizer and the South African firm BioVac are partnering to produce up to 100 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine. Uh, this will be per year. It's the first time the Pfizer shots to be made in Africa. The deal is critical to ramping up the continent's vaccination drive. Only one and a half percent of Africa's population is fully vaccinated. Dr. Marina Makahone is the CEO of BioVac Institute and joins me now. Doctor, thank you. We'll get to the nitty gritty of it all uh, in a moment and, and the policy points. First, though, when realistically... When do you expect to be up and running? Uh, thank you, Richard, and thank you for having me. Um, after all the tech transfer processes would be completed by the second half of 2022, uh, we will be commencing production uh, for the market. And I, I mean, you know, to those of us fully vaccinated in, in other countries, that sounds like a long way off. But I assume that the nature of Africa as uh, current vaccination status suggests that the vaccine you will be producing will be most welcome, even though it does seem late. Uh, absolutely, Richard. I think, uh, as you said uh, in your opening remarks, I mean, Africa is still lags the rest of the world in terms of vaccination. We must also uh, keep in mind that, I mean, there is a possibility that there may be boosters. We're not sure how variants are going to shape, uh, you know, the whole vaccine world in the next coming years. And so there, I think there'll still be a need for COVID-19 vaccines for a few more years. Why has it taken uh, so long for this deal to be done? Uh, I, I realise maybe in, in, in legal terms and in technical terms it might see, uh, be, be fast, but the, one would have thought that even late last year plans were being made or uh, agreements were being put in place for this sort of arrangement. But we're seven months into vaccinations being underway. Well, um, so I think, Richard, we should look at it in the context of when the mRNA technology actually was shown to work clinically. And it was mm -hmm. only in December. And yes, it's been seven months. Uh, and in a pandemic, seven months is a lot of uh, time. However, when you look at also when did Pfizer really uh, get into a lot of external tech transfers whilst they have their own internal manufacturing network, but a lot of the transactions that they entered with with others like Sanofi or Novartis mm. were actually in 2021. So, so you know, in the context of a seven-month, um, you know, a lead time from the time that the right. vaccine has been shown to be successful, 
you know, in that context is probably, you know, not to better timeline, particularly as a first for Africa. You talk about it as an external tech transfer. And the big issue has been one, of course, of uh, proprietary protection for, uh, the, for, for, for the vaccines underlying sources. Um, what, what has been put in place? Because the waiver as such hasn't necessarily been done. So what have you had to put in place that will protect Pfizer's uh, intellectual property? Yeah, so Richard, this is the second um, tech transfer arrangement that we've entered with Pfizer. So we have been in an existing relationship with Pfizer on a uh, on a vaccine against childhood pneumonia. Mm-hmm. So it's not a new relationship, and so we are talking to a party that we know uh, uh, that we know well, and so that essentially means that the trust has been there in terms of the knowledge that they. Uh, that they are sharing with us on the, you know, on the other vaccines. So going into this transaction, you know, we didn't have to have too many fights about intellectual property or anything like that because uh, the trust is there uh, and all they needed to, to do and will be doing is to sharing the know-how and pass it on to, to Biovex. So, so, so we didn't get into any right. intellectual property but, debates. Right. Uh, but, but I guess to, 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 a, to an extent... Will you be involved, if you like, in the intellectual property of uh, the de- and, and the further development of it? Or are you de facto going to be, I suppose, a bit like, you know, the distributors of, of soft drinks, not to minimise it, but you receive the source goods, you manufacture and you deliver? Yes, absolutely. This is Pfizer's product, Pfizer and BioNTech's product. So it won't be uh, BioVex product. We will be contracted to manufacture uh, Pfizer's product. So we won't uh, be dealing with anything that uh, has to tamper with any intellectual property that Pfizer has. And the, the first plant, I believe, is going to be in South Africa. Is it at all realistic, bearing in mind, particularly this, vi- this, this vaccine, vaccine, which is more difficult to make, it's more difficult to store, um, is it likely that there would be other production facilities or is it simply not realistic to do that? Well, um, you know, so to date, I mean, Pfizer has only entered the transaction with BioVac. We're not sure if they have any intentions of going elsewhere. But let me just put into context, I mean, that you, you know, you you have to have at least existing facilities that are of modern standards and of high quality for one to be able to absorb such a technology. And you need to have the infrastructure and the skills that can really absorb such a technology. So I think... In the selection process and where, wherever they go globally, I think they look at, at all of that. If one or more of those things okay. don't exist, uh, then it becomes a problem. We'll talk more. We look forward to covering the opening of your plant and seeing the first vaccines coming from it. So good to talk to you. Have a good weekend. The markets will open in New York, expected to be higher. A bit of a tear at the moment. Let's see if it's going to be four in a row, erasing completely worries of inflation. It's first move. And this is CNN. And a warm welcome back. It's first move. The bell has rung and the final trading day of the week on Wall Street is underway. There's optimism. Look at that. Uh, Optimism on all the major averages kicking Friday higher. Tech stocks leading the way. They're against for Twitter, Snap, Facebook and Alphabet. Go all. Consumer spending also appears to be recovering strongly. 
American Express has reported an increase in revenue after five consecutive quarters of decline. Shares are up nearly three and a half percent. And to our top story, after postponement controversy and despite ongoing calls to cancel the whole thing, Tokyo's Olympics are underway. The opening ceremony is taking place right now. Will Ripley has more on exactly what it took to get these games underway. Taking off, it really hits you. Hosting the Tokyo 2020 Summer Games is a massive logistical challenge. This is one of the biggest cities in the world. Every single direction you look in, there's skyline. It's never ending. One building really stands out. Tokyo's $1.5 billion Olympic Stadium. Right now, we're flying over the centerpiece of Tokyo 2020. Almost 70,000 seats in that stadium. Nearly all of them empty. The Olympics' first ever spectator ban. A dramatically scaled down opening ceremony. Organizers say only about 950 VIPs attending, including U.S. First Lady Jill Biden. We get a closer look on the ground. This is as close as most Japanese are able to get to their Olympic stadium. Police have shut down surrounding roads and even fenced off the perimeter. For everyday folks, this is their only shot at seeing the Olympics up close. Public opinion polls show Japanese overwhelmingly don't want the games to go forward, but you wouldn't know it looking at these long lines of people who are waiting to take selfies in front of the Olympic rings. I'm worried about the Olympic bubble. It's not perfect, but I want to cheer on the athletes. That bubble to protect athletes from COVID-19. A small but growing number of athletes are testing positive, even inside the Olympic Village. So excited to go to Tokyo, but I'm also like terrified the fact that you could fly all the way there and then test positive. Athletes are tested for COVID daily, asked to arrive five days before competing and leave two days after. From above, you can see how packed it is. Some 18,000 athletes and officials will be staying in those buildings down there. You can see a lot of their national flags on the sides. Most of the Olympic venues are here in Tokyo. Japan invested billions, only to have fake crowd noise echoing through all those empty stands. This is going to be an Olympics like none other. And the world is watching. They want to see if Japan can pull this off in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a state of emergency without the Olympics turning into a super spreader event. Will Ripley, CNN, flying above Tokyo. Next guest is a CEO in Tokyo who knows all too well the challenges these games have come up with. Casey Wilde is the CEO of Attuned, which creates, which works to create motivational software, something we can probably all identify with right now. Good to have you, sir. What's your mood? What Thank is you, the mood? How do you, how do you see what is taking place in Tokyo? And I mean, if we talk about motivational, how can you motivate in an, in an environment that seems to be so dour? It's, it's interesting. I think like right now, as we're speaking, like the Japan national team is coming into the stadium, right, for the opening ceremony. So with these opening ceremonies right now, I think we're going to have a psychological shift and it's going to be a fresh start. So up to the games, there's a lot of anxiety. There's mixed emotions for many people. You know, Japan wanted to show the kimono, hey, we're beautiful, have the world welcome us, but it couldn't happen. So now you're seeing the other side of Japan, that salaryman, samurai type of thing. And up into the games, we just dutifully have to make them happen. But now that it's here, I think every Japanese person is going to be glued to their TV for the next 16 days. I can get that, and I can understand the sport. I worry, though... 
the lack of an audience there, the lack of spectators, um, isn't that going to denude what would otherwise be a great experience? I think so. For uh, I mean, the athletes for sure, right? You want them to experience, want them to have their family, you want the cheer of the crowd, when the ball shifts back and forth. You want to feel that for the event. But uh, I think we're all going to get used to it. You know, we are doing the first pandemic. Uh, sorry, the first Olympics in a pandemic, right? There is no playbook for this. So Japan, with its innovation, you know, its focus on security for this, is trying to figure out as we go and make sure it comes out safe, that the athletes have a good experiment, experience, everything that they've worked for for the last few years can come out, right? And the preparations obviously are there, God forbid, in case it all goes wrong and there is some major outbreak. Do you believe that by the close, and this is just pure speculation, do you believe by the close people in Japan will, have, will, will say, well, we were right to do it? I think absolutely, with no doubt. Like Japan has a responsibility as a country. It isn't a country that goes away from its responsibility. So if you have a contract with Japan, they're going to follow through it. And I think it's going to be about what the athletes do and the stories that we tell and the emotions that get played on on the field. But 16 days from now, when the Paralympics start and after the Paralympics finish, I think Japan will have a very quiet pride for many, many years. And culturally, mm. these Olympics are already starting to change Japan. Good to talk to you. We will talk. We, we, I'm aware you have you have tantalizingly put that on the table about what that change is on the cultural change. I think I haven't noticed we are out of time, which means we'll have to have you back so we can explore that further. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It Thank is first much. move on a Friday. Shares of Chinese tech firm giant Didi down again. The door may be closing on Chinese IPOs on Wall Street. We'll talk that in a moment. It's first move. Shares of the Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi are tanking, literally. I mean, look at it, down 17.5% on top of the other 10, 12, 15% over the last few weeks, down now more than 30%. It's following reports that Beijing's planning to hand the company tough penalties and may be requiring the suspension of some operations as, long, as well as large fines. Regulators have launched investigations only two days after Didi's big stock market debut in New York. Before that IPO, 2021 was shaping up to be a huge year for Chinese listings here. But expectations are now changing. CNN's Claire Sebastian with that. In the spring of 2019, China's answer to Starbucks opened trading in New York. Luckin Coffee promising to convert millions of Chinese tea lovers with low prices and high-tech convenience. It was just so attractive because on a per-store basis, its market cap was, was very low. Then 23-year-old Ryan Cullen, a finance professional in Ohio, was sold. I saw it as an opportunity to get in early on a very fast-growing company. And China, for me, has always been sort of the, like a, a, an untapped frontier. For years, American investors have flocked to Chinese companies listing in the U.S. as an easy way to own a piece of China's fast-growing consumer market. And for years, China has resisted complying with a requirement for public companies here that the U.S. be allowed to inspect the accounting firms that audit these companies. Everybody has to comply with that rule. American companies, British companies, Malaysian companies, 
Turkmenistan companies, except one, Chinese companies. They just say no. Compliance with that rule may not have prevented what happened next with Luckin Coffee. It turned out that the company had fabricated sales to the tune of about $310 million. An accounting scandal that eventually led to its delisting, a bankruptcy filing, and big losses for U.S. investors like Ryan Cullen. Luckin really came to the market, got a bunch of capital from its IPO, and then just sort of left. And it left a lot of American investors like holding the bag. Now, I have a bill. It's very simple. It did, though, help spur action in Congress. Last December, then-President Trump signed the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, forcing companies from countries which won't allow audit inspections for three consecutive years to be delisted. Right now, China is the only one. The SEC is still figuring out how to enforce the law. It's always been clear that the situation of uninspectable auditors in one country just couldn't go on. And if U.S. regulators don't deter Chinese listings, Chinese regulators might. Two days after China's ride-hailing giant Didi went public, it was hit with a cybersecurity review in China. Then it was kicked off app stores. They're handling huge amounts um, of data that, that is increasingly being considered sensitive by the Chinese government. China has now proposed requiring all large tech companies that want to list overseas to undergo a cybersecurity review. And all this complicated by tensions between the U.S. and China. Didi and the recent events here have sort of given ammunition to those uh, really in Congress, for example, the China hawks in Congress, who, who, who really want to accelerate this process and are saying, you know, this is this is not good for U.S. investors. But if, if, if it looks like the relationship is sort of going you know, further south, then I, I would say that the Chinese government may decide that, you know, hey, why should we agree to auditing of our companies? It's clear after years of a fragile but mutually beneficial status quo, something has to give. And investors could be caught in the middle. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. The COVID-19 Delta variant is driving uncertainty around Europe's reopening. And it's very difficult for any business to make a plan, but especially if you're in the hospitality industry. And amongst those affected is the hotel chain Rocco 40 Hotels. Whilst all locations are now open in Europe, the chairman told me the uncertainty is a disaster for his company and others like it. My last financial year, my turnover was 20% of a normal year. It's not just my industry, it's the airlines, it's, uh, it's the entertainment industry. Children can't go to school, uh, parents can't go to work because their children's not at school. Uh, it's, a, it's a complete and utter disaster. And governments have been single-minded in, in looking at it in one, in one way, and they ignored everything else. They ignored the economy. Uh, they've, they've ignored the, uh, the other health uh, aspects, outcomes that, that, have, uh, that have occurred as a result. All they worry about is, 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 this, is this disease, which is not uh, the worst disease that's ever hit the world. It's nothing like the bubonic plague, and your chances of dying for, from it, even if you catch it, are very small indeed. We, the, the view of the government has been time and again, you know, you, lives versus livelihoods, which is the, the argument that, that they put forward, that we have to deal with the, with, with the disease first. And 
whether one agrees with that or not, we, we, we are where we are. But, Saraga, what can you yes. do now? What can you do what, now? What is, the, what is the point of vaccines? Why have we all been vaccinated and been encouraged to, to, uh, to, vac- to be vaccinated if it makes no difference, if we can't carry on and go back to a normal life? And that's what's happening at the moment. The fact that uh, a majority of the population and certainly all the vulnerable people have been vaccinated and yet we're continuing on uh, continuing exactly as before. It's, 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 it's absolutely unbelievable. And it's not just, uh, it's the British government, of course, and, and, and Britain is one of the countries that's most advanced with vaccinations, as, the, as is the United States. And they can't, uh, they can't produce a protocol between them to allow Americans to come to the UK and, and UK citizens to go to the United States. Uh, Italy, where I am at the moment, I'm in Rome, actually, in my Hotel de la Ville in, uh, in Rome, my new hotel there. Uh, and Italy, they've, they've opened up uh, the borders to the American, American market, uh, and Americans are, becoming, are beginning to come here uh, again. We've got your hotels reopened, and one imagines that business, well, it will be better this year than last, but whether one ever makes any money um, is... I'm guessing you've had to put expansion, that sort of uh, uh, a dream that, that's not going to happen uh, anytime soon. So how will you come out of the pandemic and what will you do next in terms of growth? Well, we just opened a hotel in, in Palermo, Villiger, which is the most iconic hotel uh, in, uh, in Europe, built in uh, the early 20th century. Uh, and uh, and actually, it's very full. Uh, uh, there's huge demand for it, uh, and and it's starting to work well uh, already. Uh, I'll end up with this more heavily indebted than I was uh, before, and obviously that will affect the, the pace uh, of expansion programs unless I, I am able to refinance in a uh, in a different way. Sir Rocco Forte. In a moment, on first move traffic at the gym is now rebounding as COVID restrictions ease in many countries. The CEO of Crunch Fitness talks us through his, well, more than reopening, his expansion possibly as we go back to the gym. During the pandemic, we learned all about body weight exercises and we pressed packets of sugar and bags of potatoes as makeshift weights. And now, of course, it's where things are reopening. We are going back to the gym in larger numbers than perhaps were expected. Crunch Fitness has more than 350 locations in five countries, says its member check-ins last month were up 80% compared to January. The Crunch Fitness CEO, Jim Rowley, is with me. Jim, we've talked during the pandemic. It is good to see you, sir. Uh, these are interesting numbers. I guess I'm not surprised. People wanted to get back. And I guess the art is to do it safely. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I appreciate you having me back. And I think you're exactly right. And that's the expectation from the members is that we're clean, we're safe, and I think they're ready to get back to socializing. That, that's a big part of it, not just exercising, but socializing as well. If we look at how you've tailored 
your offering, if you like? What changes, besides the obvious health changes, uh, screens or uh, different rules in changing rooms and things like that, moving machines around a bit, how have you altered in a corporate mindset for returning and trading in, in, a, in a reopening? Yeah, it's been interesting. I, I don't know that we've altered much. I think Crunch has had a legacy for over 30 years, and we're trying to establish that same expectation that the members had before. What we've seen is substantial growth, both in our franchise operations and our owned operations. We actually grew our franchise member base during the pandemic, during the shutdown. Our members increased by more than 5%. So I think it's really about meeting the members' expectations with our our group fitness classes, our high-intensity workouts, and so forth. Do you think your, the, the, your, your clients, your, the, the, the people who go there to work out, do you think they're going with a different vision and different view? Uh, has the pandemic, from what you can tell, and I, well, I, I, of course, a lot of it's anecdotal, of course, it's how each of us feels, but are people working out in a different way, do you think? They are. It's interesting. We've seen... Pre-pandemic, there was a higher use of cardiovascular equipment, treadmills and bicycles and such. And we, we believe that the trend has really shifted now towards more of an independent workout, body weight workout, uh, more isolated um, in some examples where they'll take weights and they'll take a mat and maybe bands and go into a section of the gym and work out in a small area, uh, maybe similar to what they were doing at home in a confined area, right. but now doing it in a population of a gym. I also look at things like the mirror and the peloton and all these things where there is a subscriber base. It's the Gillette principle. Buy the, buy the item and then pay a subscription thereafter. How do you cash in on that? Well, we've got a, uh, a product called Crunch Live, which has uh, choreographed classes. We've had that for years. And during the, the COVID shutdown, we improved our lighting, our sound. We improved our studio that we film. Uh, we call it the Crunch Lab. And... Uh, so we've been putting out more product, both for members and non-members alike, to join on a subscription. It's fascinating, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's how we all have learned something. I mean, look, I, I, I'm a gymaholic. I love going to the gym. The problem, uh, and unfortunately, now the pandemic's over, in a sense, I've actually got to go and do it. I can't make an excuse. That's exactly right. And, and look... Working out's not easy. I think that's why they call it a workout, right? So uh, there is work involved. You just have to have the right goals. You have to have the right discipline. And once you get to the gym, it's significantly easier. It's, it's making that move from the apartment or the home or the yeah. office to get. Good to see you, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. One rule of joining gyms, it has to be within five minutes of your home or your work. This idea of some magnificent place that you're going to drive to and it's long way off, you'll never use it. Home or work within five minutes, that's the rule for going to the gym. That is it for First Move. I should go myself this weekend. I'll let you know next week if I do. I'll be back with you on Quest Means Business later today. Maybe I should go between now and then. No, I won't. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. Whatever you're up to, between now and then. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.